Thanks for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. The holidays will be upon us soon, with all of the fun and chaos that come with them. It is not exactly a great time to think deeply about what we'd like to change in the next year. And so, this past Sunday at Storyline's Gathering, before life goes into overdrive, we began a new series on resolutions for 2024. The band performed songs by Adele, Need to Breathe, Oasis, and Alan Stone. Let's have a listen.
can't stretch it any further. Push, pull, tear. The other day you asked questions about babies and stuff. When you started sneezing. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, anyway, I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that now. Okay. Good. Good. Okay. Let me try to explain a few things. All right. Okay. Here's what happens. When a man and a woman love each other very much, they get married. And then sometimes they decide to make a baby. Why are there babies? Right, right. Okay, I'm going to get to that. Okay. What a man and a woman do is... No, I mean, I know that the man and the woman have to do something, but why are we born? Why has God put us here? <laughs> because that's what? <laughs> if we all go to heaven when we die, then why does God want us here first? Um, why does God want us here? Yeah, why? <laughs> why are we here, Daddy? Yeah, I heard you. I heard you. <laughs> you don't want to talk about sex? You ever, you ever hear the word fallopian? What's that now? Oh, good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be together. Wow, there's very few subjects parents would rather less talk about than sex, and I guess it's about God. So anyway, um, guys, it's November. Can you believe this? It's like, I can't believe it, 2023 is coming to a close. And I've been thinking a lot about next year. In fact, you know, as we plan, like, what are we gonna talk about? What are we gonna do? And um, I got a note a couple weeks ago about the new year, and it suggested, instead of waiting until January, let's talk about resolutions now. And now I know you're all wondering who this high achiever is, right? Like, and they shall remain nameless. But actually, I kind of kicked that around. And then we ended our series on Grace Changes Everything. And then last week was an amazing story Sunday. If you weren't here, you have to go to our website and watch last week's gathering. It was just incredible. Um, Michelle, Mark and Sherry, Lori, Mike, and Tiffany shared how Grace is changing their lives. And I thought, maybe we could con 
combine these two ideas and what if we considered our response to the grace of God as a resolution? What if we looked at that? And so for the rest of this month, we're gonna do just that. We're gonna look at this uh, resolved to respond to grace and how responding to grace is, very, is a very, very different kind of resolution, which I think for most of us is good news. Uh, because, maybe you didn't know this, the average resolution lasts until January 6th. We don't even make it one week. By January 6th, over 50% of us have given up on our resolutions. And so, you know, obviously that's not good. So why are resolutions so hard to keep? Why do most of them fail? And I think part of it is this reality that we are always trying to make something happen. Like the change is all on us. And I, I see this all the time in the different kinds of people that I meet, specifically kids. I teach at Lakeshore High School. I was a young life leader for 26 years. And so we would take kids to camp all the time. And I think you learn a lot about kids. You learn a lot about people when you spend that kind of time with them. And, and one of the many highlights for me of taking kids to camp was when we would all, you know, unpack, get into our rooms, and then we're all, the first thing you do is you always head to the pool. Like we're going to head down to the water for the first time. And you learn a lot about people by watching them at a pool. This is my little, one of my little life philosophies. Like you can tell a lot about somebody. So there are different types of people at a pool. The first are the type of folks who walk to the pool, they get there and they go straight for the lounge chair, right? They just, they're, they're putting their towel out. They're, really the pool doesn't need to be there for them at all. The second type of person are those who walk up to the pool, they just kind of dip their toe in the water, they decide, you know, it's a little bit too cold, and then they find the lounge chair. There's a third type. These are the people that they, you know, they bust through the gate of the pool and the hat's coming off, the shirt's coming off, they're dropping their towel, it, the lotion, everything's everywhere and they're just sprinting for the water and they jump in. Now, I am definitely group two. That's this kind of how I roll, you know. And I think resolutions are hard to keep because they feel like we have to be like in group three or even maybe group four which is these are the people who swim 25 laps every morning at 5 a.m. The people that we just love to hate, right? Like these are the people who make it happen. They're resolved, right? There's no denying that. And I think we can easily frame the life of faith that way. We can think of it like that, like it's like group four, like, I got to get up at 5 a.m. and I've got to swim my 25 laps. So my guess is, however, if you resonate with storyline, you probably are not in group three when it comes to faith and God and church. Like, people who just sprint towards church. Like, yeehaw, this is going to be everything religious is my favorite thing to do. So we're not in that group. Uh, you probably aren't in group four. You know, these people who are so super religious that they just spend all day praying for people who laugh too much. And so I, I, I'm going to guess that most of us, if you resonate with Storyline, you're in group one or two. Like, you're, you're here to check things out. Like, there's a crowd over there. Let me see what's happening. And maybe dip our toe in the water and let's just, let's see what this feels like. 
So keeping that in mind, keeping in mind that that's kind of the, you know, the general vibe of storyline, how can we resolve to respond to God's grace? And I want to begin with trying to change our narrative about the life of faith itself. Because here's the thing, unlike any other kind of resolution, because it is the life of faith in God's grace that Jesus is inviting us into to respond to, this is not about us making something happen in our life. It's about letting something happen. I think that's a better way to think about it or think about it like this. It's not about a commitment to keep as much as it is about a surrender to sustain. To to stick with our metaphor, um, the life of faith means getting into the pool. Not just sitting around it, not just dipping our toe into it, but it isn't to swim laps. It's getting in the pool to play in the water. And there is a huge difference in these responses to a pool. Is it for swimming laps? For making something happen? Or is it for playing? For discovering? For allowing something to happen? I know I relate to the way um, that one author said it. He, he, he said this, the church by and large has a poor record of encouraging this free response to God. It has spent so much time inculcating in us the fear of making mistakes that it has made us like ill-taught piano students. We play our songs, but we never really hear them because our main concern is not making music, it is to avoid making mistakes. It's really good and really tragic. God's grace is the undeserved love, acceptance, affection, and forgiveness of God for everyone, everywhere, every day. This is the reality that we consider together in one shape or form or another every single Sunday when we're together. There's nothing we can do to get God on our side because he's already on our side. That is the foundation, that nothing can happen until we recognize, realize, remember, and rejoice in that. And yet, there are things that we can do. There are things that we must do to get ourselves on God's side. We must respond to grace. This response to God's grace is faith. This is what the Bible calls it, faith. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how our faith in his grace is not what God wants from us, like like he needs it. Faith is what God wants for us. Um, Because living by faith in God's grace, a trust that God is good and good for us is the best way to live. It's the constant reminder that pools are meant to be played in. That's the point. Now like everything, this is, that's everything that's truly beautiful, whether it's in a museum or on a hike or when you hold a baby, 
Everything that's truly beautiful in and about life, all of this is beyond our ability to fully understand or adequately explain. And that is why we so often use analogies. It's why Jesus did. We are reduced to analogies and metaphors when it comes to God and grace and faith. We, we did use one a few months ago that, you know, because I use two or three every Sunday, and it's always um, interesting to me which ones really resonate. And that I find that out because I hear from you later in texts and emails. And we used one metaphor for um, faith in the grace of God a few weeks ago that really struck a chord with a lot of people. It pictures the God of grace as a good father standing below a second story window of a house that is on fire. And his daughter is in the window of this house that's engulfed in flames. And so she has to get out of the house. So he he walks below the window and he says, jump, sweetheart. And she says, but I can't see you. And he says, that's okay. I can see you. Jump. And in this analogy, in this metaphor, the child is saved by the grace of her father. In other words, there's nothing that she did to get her father to want to catch her. This wasn't something that she made happen. This is something that her faith in his graciousness, the intention, his intention, his strength, his love, and his devotion to her, her trust that her father is that kind of father, let this happen let this happen and she had to respond she had to jump to fall into his arms for her father's grace to save her she didn't make it happen but she did let it happen and this is why the bible says that we are saved by grace through faith in other words it's all god's grace from start to finish but we have to respond c.s lewis gets at god's grace for us and our need to respond with faith like this and i think this is just a brilliant um, passage here there are times when we can do where we can do all that a creature fellow creature needs only if he will trust us In getting a dog out of a trap and extracting a thorn from a child's finger and teaching a boy to swim, the one fatal obstacle may be their distrust. We are asking them to trust us in the teeth of their sense, their imagination, and their intelligence. We ask them to believe that what is painful will relieve their pain and that what looks dangerous is their only safety. We ask them to accept apparent impossibilities, that moving the paw farther into the trap is the only way to get it out, that hurting the finger by taking out the splinter is the only way to stop the finger hurting, that water, which is obviously permeable, will resist and support the body. If we succeed, we do so because they have maintained their faith in us against apparently contrary evidence. No one blames us for demanding such faith and no one blames them for giving it. Maybe why we are here has a lot to do with realizing that God already loves us and then 
growing to love his love through trusting in it. Maybe that is the only way through our willing trust that God can help us to feel his love. This is Greta, our first time, her first time with us. Thank you, Greta. So good. Wow, wow, wow. 
So what does this look like? Resolving to respond to God's grace, not as some religious commitment to keep, to to get God on our side, to make something happen, but with faith, a trust in God's goodness for us, a sustained surrender that lets something happen. That's what we're gonna be looking at the next few weeks. And I wanna take, I'm gonna look just at a couple of ideas this morning. For me, this begins with surrendering what I think I need to know. I, in the summer before we graduated from high school, um, it was my, going into my senior year, Rock 107 FM, the local radio station here, ran a promotion at the fair. Berrien County Fair, come to their booth at the fair and they will give you a free lottery ticket, okay? And I was driving down Cleveland Avenue, I remember exactly where I was, I was at the corner of Cleveland Avenue and Glenlord when I heard them advertise this and I instantly got this amazing idea. I just, you know, see what you think. See, um, so I got home and I immediately called the radio station and told them <laughs> that uh, I had gone by their booth And the ticket that they gave me, I actually won $5,000. Total lie, okay? And I, oh yeah, by the way, I told them that my name was Brian Schindeldecker, okay? My friend Brian. So it's a prank, right? The The radio station buys this and then announces on the radio multiple times, local man, Brian Schindeldecker, wins lottery. (laughs) Now, it seemed like a harmless prank to me when the radio station figured out that it was a prank. They weren't thrilled. Um, But the real problem was that Brian didn't forget it. And so when we went back to school that fall, just a few weeks later, he got my senior picture and he put it on a piece of paper and below it, he wrote this note. My name is Mike. I need a date. Please call 429-7464. Now, he then made hundreds of copies of this flyer. Brian essentially invented social media bullying in 1984, okay? Now, it's a little embarrassing, but I actually think that we have my senior picture. Could John go ahead and put that up? Okay. Now, (laughs) it's crazy how little some people change, and my hair is obviously... Not that long anymore, but uh, anyway. So Brian posted, the, posted these, put these pictures, up, these posters up. He put them at the grocery store. He put them up at the Orchards Mall. Okay, now, for those of you under 30, a mall is a, never mind. Okay, so he put one on the windshield. This was the killer. He put one under the windshield wiper of every car at Lakeshore High School. So I walked out, I don't know, third or fourth day of school. I'm like, this is weird. Walked up, I'm like, oh my God. And then you look and every car is plastered with this. And you know what happened? It worked. It worked. I actually got a phone call, just one. But I got, I got, because the real picture may not have looked that good. I'm just saying. Anyways, I actually got a phone call, just one. Now, she would not tell me her name. And she called multiple times. She never gave me her name. But as embarrassed as I was, in all honesty, I really did want to know. Like I walked, I walked the halls of Lakeshore. I wandered the halls of Lakeshore wondering, who is this mystery girl? Like I'm thinking to myself, who is it? 
who loves you? Who, who wants to know you? Who keeps calling you, right? I had all of these questions and no answers. It was a mystery. We have a difficult relationship with mystery, don't we? I mean, on the one hand, we love it, we're drawn to it. There's all kinds of TV shows, mystery novels, these whodunits, they're, they're huge money makers. But there is this tension with mystery. We want it in our lives, and yet unsolved mysteries drive us crazy. Life without mystery is boring, but life in a permanent mystery, living in the perpetual dark, just, it drives us nuts. The point is, we think we need to know to move forward. That's just the assumption that we make. I need to know before I move forward. And I suspect this is where things like the entire astrology, psychic hotline, tarot cards, fortune teller industry comes from. These practices all at once seem so mysterious. So we like that part of it. And yet the irony is, is that they're all about removing mystery. Like we're gonna tell you what's going to happen. And we do this in other areas of life as well. We use science to try and do the same thing, even though that isn't really what science is about. In his amazing book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, Bill Bryson, in one chapter, chapter after another, goes through some of the greatest mysteries of the physical universe. Basically, all the things that science has discovered, it doesn't know. And the end, the, then he ends the first half of his book this way. The upshot of all of this is that we live in a universe whose age we can't compute, surrounded by stars whose distances we don't altogether know, filled with matter that we can't identify, operating in conformance with physical laws whose properties we don't truly understand. Science hasn't removed the mystery from life. If anything, it creates more of it which is part of the point of science. We just don't like to use it that way. And, and frankly, our reason, philosophy, they haven't fared any better, even when they pretend to. During the French Revolution, the revolutionaries, they hated all the institutions, including the church. And during the French Revolution, they took the cross down from Notre Dame. They stormed into Notre Dame Cathedral. They got, went behind the altar and they took the cross down at Notre Dame. And in its place, they set up the goddess of reason. It's a true story. And after they did that, no head was safe in Paris. With the goddess of reason raised to her highest heights, the French, so sure of themselves, of their rationality, of their reason, of their powers of philosophy, proceeded to behead 17,000 people in Paris. So many people that you couldn't drink the water in Paris because it got into the groundwater. History makes it clear that there is a steep price to pay when we think we need to remove all mystery. Now, all of these mysteries and our inability to solve them inevitably lead us sooner or later to the subject of God. One scientist described why he was not an atheist. This, this is how he described it. We are in the position of a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. 
The child knows someone must have written those books. It does not know how. It does not understand the language in which they are written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books, but doesn't know what it is. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being toward God. We see the universe marvelously arranged and obeying certain laws, but only dimly understand. The question about God, for most of us at least, is not so much does he exist. The mystery is, what is God like? What is God like? And how do I respond? And this is where we have to be as careful with religion as we are with science and reason and philosophy. Because there are times when when religion tries to act like science and explain away all of the mystery and demystify life in God, and maybe that is a mistake. Please stop. Look, it turns out Allie doesn't want to know how we get here. She wants to know why we're here, why God put us on Earth, and she's waiting for Ray to answer her. What's wrong with you? It's simple. Oh, okay, yeah. We're going to learn the meaning of life from a guy who once threw his shoe at a swan. (laughs) That's called protecting your sandwich. (laughs) Listen, we're not talking about what we do while we're here, Dad. Yeah, yeah, the big question is why we're here in the first place. You know, I've spent many a night lying in bed thinking about this kind of stuff. Life's imponderables. (laughs) Where are we? Where are we in the big scheme of things? I think Allie's too young to be worrying about things like this. No, I'm proud of her. I love it that she's such an independent thinker. If she's so independent, why can't she figure this out herself? Ray, listen, just get up there and tell her that God put us on Earth to help each other. It's simple, it's direct, it's a good way for her to live her life. What are you talking about? That doesn't answer anything. What, what are you telling me that God said, hmm, Earth, let's see, what should I put there? Hmm. That's your God? Yeah. No way. It's got to be deeper and cool. Hello, I'm God. You ever think about space? What is it? Is it really endless? I mean, if you had a spaceship, could you go flying and flying through space forever? Why don't you give it a shot? I'm not kidding around here. I mean, how could space go on forever? And if it doesn't, then what's at the end, huh? Stop it, Robbie. You'll give yourself a tummy ache. What about the beginning of time? What was it before that? Before time? Nothing? I mean, what is nothing? How could there be nothing? This doesn't bother anybody else? Brilliant episode of Everyone Loves Dreaming, by the way. So... I was sharing this topic with our friend Jill McNabney, who speaks here quite a bit, and she told me that this reminds her of her forensic science class at Lakeshore High School. And she wrote this to me in an email. The, uh, they, they study a bunch of unsolved murder mysteries in this class, and, it's, and the kids love it, and so this is what she wrote. The unsolved case studies that we cover are the ones that kids are most interested and invested in. For the past few years, I've been intrigued by what they 
why they care so much more about JonBenet Ramsey over O.J. Simpson case. Both crimes happened before they were alive. They start off with no knowledge of either one. But if I would let them, they would spend weeks covering JonBenet, but get through O.J. in a couple of days. Why? Because JonBenet Ramsey's case remains a mystery. Religion does humanity a great disservice when it seeks to explain away the mysteries of life. Now, maybe it does this to try to compete with science as the source of knowledge or to try and give people what it thinks that we want, but life without mystery really is no life at all. I mean, imagine, imagine if all the mystery were gone, if we knew everything about everything already. As good as that sounds for a second, I think we know when you really think about it, it would ruin everything. That's the very opposite of life. It's the mystery of what happens next from a golf shot to growing children. It's the mystery that makes everything from a vacation to a concert to a sporting event worth the ticket of admission. To try and demystify God and life is to slowly strangle the life out of both of them. The opposite of this, to live in the mystery, is what psychologists now call flow. If you've heard of this concept, we think we need to know. We think we need to know to move forward. This morning, my friend Nick, I asked him how uh, work is going, and he says, we're learning to thrive in the ambiguity. I love that phrase. We think we need to know the goal, that it needs to be clearly in front of us to move forward. But that's not really how life works. Flow, psychology tells us, works very, very differently. Uh, Angela Duckworth, a famous psychologist in education, explains flow like this. Goal pursuit requires effort. But when you're in flow, the opposite is true. It's hard to stop. For example, a kid playing a video game can be in flow. They're so engrossed that it's a struggle to pull them away. Why? It's because they want to satisfy their curiosity. It's thriving in the ambiguity. It's leveraging the curiosity. It's recognizing that the mystery can move us forward. Mystery, not knowing as much as we think we need to, to move forward, actually moves us forward. It cultivates curiosity. It creates flow in our life, to life. That is the difference between playing in the pool and swimming laps. Now, no one was more guilty of this, of killing curiosity and mystery, than the religious leaders of Jesus' day. When Jesus came onto the scene, the religious leaders had it down. They not only had the Old Testament of the Bible, they had, they had piled and stacked all kinds of rules and regulations and rituals on top of that. They believed they had God in a box with a bow on top. They understood completely what life was supposed to look like, what was going to happen next, and how to make that happen. They stripped the mystery from God and quickly thereafter the life from people. And then Jesus showed up and blew the doors off of their answers. 
They hated him for it. But massive crowds of people were drawn to him. When he spoke, when he was around, he brought life with him to people. He rarely, he rarely answered questions. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about Jesus in the Bible. Jesus rarely answered questions. One theologian counted, he was asked 183 questions in the Bible. He answered three. He didn't predict the future, he nurtured the present. He didn't solve the mysteries of the world. He seemed to celebrate them and to invite us to marvel at them. The point is, he brought people to life not by answering their questions, but by setting them off on a quest. Is this why God doesn't explain away all of the mysteries? Maybe, yes. Maybe it's because he's leveraging mystery reminding us that we don't need to know everything to move forward, that it's possible to thrive in ambiguity, that life is bigger than we can ever hope to understand, contain, or see. And maybe it's because he wants a relationship with us. He wants us to truly love him, and he wants us to truly love one another. And relational mystery is why we are here. Our greatest poets and writers and artists call this by another name. Sometimes they use the word like wonder. When the wonder is gone out of our most intimate relationships, it becomes a big problem. Marriage counselors will tell you that some of the most dangerous phrases they hear in counseling is, he never, or she always. Why? Because it means the mystery is gone. These two have figured each, they think, they've figured each other out perfectly. Everything's predictable. He always, she nevers. But healthy relationships are continually discovering what makes another person different from us. And in the process, we discover more about ourselves, who we are, who we aren't, who we could be, who we could become. This is the glory of life. It's that mystery. This is the incredible power of the, the other word that artists used for wonder, is, which is romance. It's about wonder. And Jesus was a romantic in this sense. He attracted such crowds and to this day remains the most written about, most famous, most controversial person who's ever walked the face of the planet. Not because he was the answer man, or predictable, or safe, it's because he awakens something in us. Something that knows that in spite of what the religious experts say, or science discovers, or philosophers try to explain, that mystery and the doubt contained within it also holds wonder and awe, and these are not the opposite of faith. They're elements of faith. I often find this expressed best, ironically, not from religious writers. I, I read and I watch a lot of guys in the sciences, people in the sciences, and so often when they talk, it, it's this soaring um, explanation or description of reality. And this is one of my favorite, and it's by an astrophysicist. Listen to what he says. 
We often fail to appreciate and honor the simple fact of existence. Children are endlessly fascinated by sparrows, click pens, rain, hands, ants, the moon, cracks in the sidewalk, dirt, coins, the shape of leaves, wind, and every other feature of reality, no matter how inconsequential. The sources of childhood wonder go on for pages, books, libraries, Having been so recently and startlingly dropped into being, they live in a state of perpetual wonder. This experience fades as we grow up. This is as it should be to an extent because we can't spend our afternoons collecting beetles in the backyards when we have bills to pay. But we should periodically be reminded of the gratuitous and astonishing gift of existence, art, and stories, and poetry, and music, and science, and walks in the woods, and acts of love, large and small, have the power to draw us back into wonder, the fountainhead of both faith and science. When we lose our capacity for wonder, we dishonor existence and forfeit the ability to place death, and suffering in their proper context. One of my absolute favorite passages of any book I've read in the last 15 years. I love it. And so to close, I want to close with one thing that I I hope that we can hang on to in the midst of the mystery because it wouldn't be right this morning to just leave God and grace and faith as a total mystery because that's not the case as well. We have clues, we have evidence, we have reason to move forward, ways to thrive in the ambiguity. In every way, Jesus's entire life pointed to one moment in time, a geographic time and place, an event, something he did, something he made happen. That meant that for us, and he meant it for us to be able to cling to, to turn to in the midst of the mystery and the wonder of life. Because it answers the question, what is God like? What is God like? And while Jesus never fully explains God or tries to, he does do something that demonstrates God's grace when he gave up his life for us on the cross. Our choices for how to respond to this mysterious, wonderful grace are also powerfully demonstrated literally at the foot of the cross. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus didn't see this or hear this because they were distracted. They were busy. They were looking down. Even in this, the most mysterious, wonderful, gracious, and loving moment in human history they embody one response we can have to it all. And the next line in the Bible says that the soldiers literally threw dice to see who would get Jesus' clothes, offered forgiveness, offered life, capital L. God hanging on a cross that they nailed him to, they turned to chance, they turned to fate, a childish game to determine the answer to the all-important question and the life-changing mystery of, Who gets his clothes? I can't help but think, as I read that scene this week, of all the ridiculous things that can consume me and the petty 
temporary, unimportant, and pathetic direction that life can take when we won't look up with wonder and surrender and instead just choose to gamble or guess. This is the reality and the tension that we live in. We are drawn by mystery because we were made for it, for the wonder of a loving God and being loved by God, and yet we resist mystery because it reminds us that there is a God and we aren't him. Maybe as 2024 approaches, we can resolve to respond to grace by giving up on making something happen and just allowing grace to transform us and allowing grace to transform into wonder and into the mystery of God's love for us. It's hard to see it, still believe it. You've always lived deep inside my heart.
Wonderful. Thank you, thank you. So life is a mystery. We all know that. But who keeps calling us? Who wants to know us? Who loves us is not. Are we willing to wander through the hallways of our life with wonder, letting all of the mysterious ways that God loves us change us? And let that be enough to move forward, to thrive in the ambiguity. Maybe that is a surrender that we can sustain and a resolution that we can keep. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and for this opportunity to be together. Give us the faith today to let the miracle of your grace have its way in us. As we leave, help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks so much for coming, folks. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. Have a blessed week.